Welcome, Cornerstone family, and those who are joining us from around the world. We've got people that are connecting into this from outside of our church as well, and that is exciting. And uh, we are welcoming you to this service, and we're excited about this time of the year. Even in the midst of this pandemic, God is still on the throne. And we are coming up to the time where we are celebrating our risen Savior. His name is Jesus Christ, and we want you to celebrate with us. We've got a lot going on today in this service, so I'm going to get right to it pretty quickly here. But let me just give you a couple encouragements. One, you probably want to get online to our website where we have some resources for you for children, for discussion guides, uh, other things online as well, a lot of information, as well as how you can give online to support this ministry, which, uh, as you can imagine, we're going to need that. So we encourage you to get online. Also, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper today, and we've been communicating that throughout the week. So we want to encourage you, even right now, to get some crackers or some bread ready, and some grape juice if you've got it, but some juice ready as well. And we're going to be celebrating what our Lord has done for us on the cross. And we want to encourage you to get ready for that even now. There's a lot of other things that we're going to be experiencing by way of worship and by way of some of the, uh, the sermon that you're going to hear from Pastor Matthew. It's going to be exciting as we begin to look at really what happened between the time that Jesus came in and his procession into Jerusalem and then when he went to the cross. So we're going to be reading about that, hearing about that as well. I want to read to you some exhortation from one of the greatest benedictions in all of the Bible. It is from the book of Jude, and it goes like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Our God is still on his throne. He is still ruling everything, even in the midst of these crazy times. But we're the church, and we trust our God. And we want to design a service that's going to increase your faith and help you worship along with the rest of us that our God is on the throne. Jesus Christ is his name. So let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. And Father, I thank you for the sacrifice that your son gave. Lord, we did not deserve it. Yet that is your great love for us. Thank you for Jesus. We want to lift his name up. We want to sing about him. We want to sing to you. We want you to be glorified. We want to be the church and we want to be those called ones that have been taken out of the world and been put into your kingdom who love you and grow together and serve others. Lord, give us the grace to be your church even in this time right now. And to that we pray in the exalted name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Let's sing to our God.
Oh, 
bear your cross as you wait for the crown tell the world of the treasure you found psalm 61 3 reads for you have been my refuge a strong tower against the enemy then in proverbs in the 18th chapter in the 10th verse 10th verse the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Yo! 
it is in your name we pray, Lord. Lord, we pray for healing for this country, Lord. We thank you so much for the gift of your son, Lord. We are so thankful for him, Lord, and that we have the opportunity to to sing his name right now, Lord, loudly and to raise our hands and to praise him freely and without fear, Lord. We are so thankful. Lord, thank you for supplying us with this means that we can continue to worship your name, Lord, amidst all this craziness and all the chaos, Lord. We just thank you so much for the gift of worship and that we get to experience it as a church body still, despite all this craziness that is happening, Lord. Lord, it is my prayer that your son, Jesus, his name is lifted high in these next few weeks, Lord, that his name is the reason for the next few weeks, Lord, that we would lift him high and praise him. And that we would not forget this Easter, Lord, and, and praising your son for the gift that he gave us through his sacrifice, Lord. We are so thankful for it. We do not deserve it. We could never earn it. Yet you gave it to us anyways, Lord. And we thank you so much for it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, church, we are here today. And it is the weekend that we are going to be celebrating Palm Sunday. And as we begin to get our minds and our hearts in step with celebrating the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection of our King, we are going to study a little bit about Christ's triumphal entry 
as well as the people's call to have him crucified. And we're going to look at this, this moment, this, this moment with Jesus and how the people of Jerusalem missed the opportunity that they had to draw nearer to their Lord, to be with their king in a way that they never could have previously. And as I've been thinking about what has been going on in our world, as I've been looking at how our culture has reacted to this pandemic, it's really struck me that we are in a unique time, a unique moment ourselves. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16 say, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. As I've been myself preparing for the celebration of the resurrection and for this sermon and really in the midst of this pandemic, that verse has been resonating through my mind. That we are to be making the best use of the time, not as unwise, but as wise. And to make the best use of something here and in this kind of uh, verse means to redeem it or to buy it back for God's purposes. How do we make the best use of our time? How do we buy that time back for God's purposes? Now, in the Greek, there are two words for time, and I've actually taught on this previously, so I'll go through this quickly, but the first of those Greek words is chronos, and it's the word from which we get our word chronology, and it kind of refers to the passage and measurement of time in fixed periods, right? Seconds, minutes, hours, days. That's chronos. The second word in the Greek for time, however, is kairos. And this word refers to a season or a moment in time that is ripe with possibilities, ripe with opportunity, something that significant can happen in this time, in this moment. And that is the word that is used in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, make the best use of this moment, this season that is ripe with opportunity. And, and so as we have been going through this pandemic and as we prepare for the celebration of our risen king, I've been thinking a lot about how to make the best use of this, this Kairos moment, this moment that the Lord has given to our world, to our, our country, our culture, to us individually, in our families. And, and so rather than, than thinking of this pandemic in terms of it being some great judgment on our world, and you know what, perhaps it is, that's for the Lord to decide, I kind of see it differently, at least as it relates to me. I see it as an opportunity to have a meaningful Kairos moment with Jesus. And, and not only to have a moment with Jesus, but also to be a part of what he is doing 
in our world, right where he has placed me, and by proxy where he has placed you. This is a unique moment in time that we have never had in this country in the recent past. Now, of course, we need to pray and to seek the mercy of God to stop this pandemic and for the health of those who have uh, contracted COVID-19. But, but beyond that, I'm praying that we will also take seriously this, this moment of opportunity, this kairos that the Lord is giving to us. So as I was thinking about that, I was, I was thinking about how the people of Jerusalem in their week with Jesus from the time of the triumphal entry to the time of his crucifixion had a, a similar opportunity, a similar moment where they had an unprecedented opportunity to be in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, to spend time with him and to draw near to him. And so today as we think about Palm Sunday, I want to look at it through that lens, through the moment that the people of Jerusalem had and then take that to us and look at the moment that we have today to be with our Lord. So we are going to be in the Gospels, primarily in the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to start in in Matthew 21. So hopefully you have your Bibles. If you don't, hit the pause button, go and get your Bible, and then come on back. We're going to be in Matthew 21, and we're going to look at the triumphal entry, and then we're going to, we're going to jump ahead, and we're going to look at the call for Christ's crucifixion. So as you're getting your Bibles, as you're turning to Matthew 21, I'm going to pray. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come before you, Lord, and right now I pray that in the midst of this world that is so full of distractions, that we would be able to to still our hearts and our minds and to be with you. That we would receive your truth through your word, that your spirit would fill us, that we would be encouraged and moved perhaps to draw nearer to you in ways that we have not been doing recently. So Lord, I I pray that my mind, my lips, my heart would be fully yielded to you, that you would speak through me, God, and that all of our hearts would be open to, to hear your truth and to be transformed by it, Lord, that we would live it out to the glory of your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just to give us a bit of a context in the timeline, right? So Jesus is in the end of his ministry. He has just recently been in Jericho where he uh, met with Zacchaeus and he healed a blind man. And then from there he goes to Bethany where he raises Lazarus from the dead, which is just about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And then on the day of his triumphal entry, he gives instructions to two of his disciples to go and to get a a colt. 
and to bring it to him that he may ride it into the city. And that is exactly where we are going to pick our text up as we turn in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read verses 6 through 11. And this is what the Word of God says starting in verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who's this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, the Gospel of Mark adds that the crowd also cheered out, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. While the Gospel of John adds that the crowd called him the King of Israel. And that they proclaimed loudly his power in raising Lazarus from the dead. And so the crowd was proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ and his, his kingdom that was, well, what they expected to be ushered in right then and there. And so the crowd, they, they take these leafy branches, which the other gospels tell us are palm branches, and they lay them at the feet of Christ, which in uh, the ancient times, and in Israel in particular, that was symbolic of, of submission to a king. Laying your cloak down was submitting to that person as a higher authority. And the palm branches were symbols of victory and power. And, and in particular, a sign of Jewish nationalism which is what they expected Jesus to do, right? They expected him to deliver them from the Romans. Hosanna means in the Hebrew, oh, save. They wanted Christ to save them from the Romans. And the text says in verse 10 that the whole city was stirred up. In the Greek, the words for stirred up, it, it's seismos, it's Basically, an earthquake. The whole city was shaking at what was happening with Christ. Now, Jesus, as he enters, the Gospel of Luke tells us that he, he goes to the temple and uh, he, he ultimately he leaves and then he's going to go back later and cleanse it. But in the midst of, of that process, the Gospel of Luke, if you want to turn there, chapter 19, I'll give you a moment, starting in verse 41. In the Gospel of Luke, it gives us an insight into what Jesus was thinking, what he was feeling in the midst of all of these people praising him and worshiping him and calling out towards him. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, tell us, 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you, city of Jerusalem, did not know the time of your visitation. See, even though this crowd was cheering for him as he approached and he saw the city, he wept because he knew that the city of Jerusalem, the people in that space and time, had missed the moment, the kairos opportunity to be with Jesus. They failed to seize it, and it, and it filled him with sorrow as he wept over those who he loves so much. Now, we know that from here, Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple, and then he teaches in the temple and he confronts the the Pharisees, those who are hypocrites in their religion. And then he has the Last Supper with his apostles where ultimately he is betrayed. And then, of course, you have the Passion of the Christ as he is arrested and goes through his beating and ultimately to be crucified. And I want to move ahead from Matthew chapter 21. We're going to jump to Matthew chapter 27. And so Jesus has been arrested. He has been questioned by the Sanhedrin. He's been questioned by Pontius Pilate. And now Pontius Pilate has decided to go to the people and give them an opportunity to override the charges of the religious leaders and to set Jesus free. And in Matthew 27, verses 17 through 18, and then 20 through 23, this is what the text tells us. So when they had gathered, that's all the people, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they, the Pharisees, had delivered Christ up. Down to verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. 
Now, the parallel texts in Mark 15 and Luke 23, they tell us that Barabbas was a murderer and an insurrectionist, the type of criminal that the Romans hated above all else. And Luke also tells us that Pilate asked the crowd three times, saying that he found no guilt in Christ. He gave the crowd three opportunities to realize the moment they were in. And all three times, they ignored his pleas as they were being stirred up by the distractions of the Pharisees, as their hearts were being ignited by those agents of the enemy to keep them from being with Jesus. Now, as we look at these two texts, the, the crowd and the city praising Christ as he's coming in in Matthew 21, and then the crowd of the city calling for Christ's crucifixion, only a few days later after they realized that he was not what they wanted him to be. There's a couple of takeaways that I want to just draw out of this and then begin to apply it to this moment that we're in right now with this pandemic going on. First of all, the people were excited for what they thought Jesus would do for them and then when they realized how he wanted to work in their lives, they rejected that opportunity to submit to his truth, to submit to his authority. They praised him and extolled him when it was convenient, but when things were clarified that he was not going to make life easy for them, that he was not going to set them free from their oppressors, that they were going to have to persevere through the difficulty and the pain, they rejected him. Their expectations were not met. And in the place of that disappointment, the agents of the enemy, the Pharisees, came along, these enemies of the truth of the gospel, and they stirred the people up to turn their backs on Christ, where they would rather see him killed than a murderer, an insurrectionist, Barabbas. And Jesus knew all of this was going to happen which is why he wept over the city, because they missed the moment that they had an opportunity to be with him in a far deeper way than they ever had before, to press into the presence of God in a way that they never had up to that point. And you know what? Praise God that he loves us, and that Jesus Christ, even though he wept over the city and knew that they would reject him, he still died for all of us, all of those people who cried out for his death. He still died that we may live, that we may have the opportunity, another chance to submit to him, another chance to go to Jesus, another chance to be filled with his spirit and to be rooted in the truth. Another chance to be with Christ. They would get another moment because of his great love for them. And he was crucified 
and died and buried and rose again to life. Praise God. And we're going to celebrate that next week. And in a few moments, we're going to remember the death of our king as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But what I want us to remember is that Jesus has given us a chance to have new Kairos moments where we can seize the opportunity and press into his presence more deeply than ever before. And right now, church, we are in one of those moments in this country. This moment provided by COVID-19 is an opportunity that we cannot pass by. We cannot allow the enemy to distract us and to inflame our fears so that we miss what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Can I get an amen wherever you're watching? Give me an amen. Come on, right now. It's really weird preaching to an empty pew and church. But you know what? I trust the Spirit of God is moving and I hope and pray that what the Lord has been resonating in my heart, He is resonating in your heart. And and men and women, we have to seize this moment. Because I believe that in the midst of this pandemic and the death that is going on, and we pray against that, but I see this as a mercy of our God on our world to get us to wake up and to take seriously the fact that he wants to be in relationship in our lives, that he wants us to press in and submit to him, to his truth, just as Christ did with the city of Jerusalem. And by God's grace, he will not weep over us because we miss the chance. By God's grace, we press in and we receive what he wants to give in his mercy to us. And what he wants to do is show us our hearts. He wants to show us our hearts in the midst of this pandemic so that we can live our lives more in step with him. Jeremiah chapter 19 verses 5 through 10 say this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Men and women, the Lord is showing us what is in our hearts through the heat of this pandemic. And he is showing us where our trust is placed. If it's in uh, the man, in our flesh, we will wither and fade and there will be no blessing. If our trust is in the Lord, 
by God's grace, we will flourish and persevere. And so in this Kairos moment, the Lord is going to bring out what is in our hearts because only he knows what's there and he will show us, praise God, that is a mercy to us, church. That is a mercy when we see what's really in our hearts. And I want to give us four ways, four ways today that the Lord is showing you what's in our heart. We're what, three, four weeks into this pandemic here, this quarantine, I guarantee if you are honest with yourself, the Lord is showing you something. And you have a moment right now to, by God's grace, seize that, to act on his mercy, that he would not weep but rejoice as you press into him more deeply. Four things, four ways. Number one, the Lord is showing us right now what kind of perspective we have on our lives. He's showing us whether our perspective is earthly or whether our perspective is eternal. Colossians chapter 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If our minds and our hearts are going after the things around us, if we are stricken as they are being taken away, that is showing us that we have the wrong perspective. That what is in our hearts is reliance on the things of this world and on the flesh. And the Lord in his mercy is showing us that by that, his grace. We can ask him to help us to shift our minds on the things above, that we would have an eternal perspective because our citizenship is in heaven, not here on earth. It is a mercy that we see where our perspective lies but it is also a mercy, number two, that he shows us our fears. He shows us our fears. It's in moments where we are pressed, in moments where we are uncomfortable, that our fears emerge. Because when we're comfortable, when we're just living life and it's, it's going well and smooth, it's so easy to hide our fears and our anxieties and our worries and be distracted by all of the, the, the junk that the world tries to pacify us with. But when things are difficult, when people start getting sick, when people start losing jobs, when you're stuck in your home and you can't go out and can do the things that you enjoy, that is going to begin to cause stress, anxiety, and show you the fear that is in your heart, the lack of trust for our God that is coming out. That is a mercy that our God is showing us that, that we may repent of it and ask him to help us to trust in him. Psalm 56, verses three and four says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, Lord, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? 
That is the mindset of the follower of Christ. What can flesh do to me? What's the worst that can happen? I die. Big deal. Then I'm with Jesus. Now, I'm not being flippant with that. Obviously, death is a scary thing, but, but we do not, by the grace of God, fear that eventuality. Because it will take all of us unless the Lord returns. Come, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen? But unless that happens, we are all going to die. So by God's grace, we seek to trust in Him through that. We trust in Him through the loss of things that we hold on to and we instead trust that we can live open-handed, that he will provide, that he will sustain, that he will help us to persevere. That is the life of the believer. That is the life of the Christian. And it is the Lord's mercy to strip away the things that we depend on, to strip away the things of the flesh that we find our strength in, and instead find our strength in the Spirit of our God. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Amen? That's what we're called to. And so the Lord is showing us our fears. He is showing us those things that cause anxiety that we may run to him and find our strength. That doesn't mean we hide from what the Lord puts in front of us. It means we boldly step forward into whatever opportunities the Lord gives. We don't cower in fear. We proclaim truth However that looks, whether it's through social media, whether it's in a phone call, or whether it's to our neighbor next door as we call out to them across the yard, we do not walk in fear by the grace of God. And if we are, this pandemic will show us that, that we can grow and mature and press closer in to our king. Number three, The Lord is going to show us our perspectives and he's going to show us our fears. But number three, he's going to show us our priorities. He's going to show us our priorities. He is going to begin to take away those things one by one that we can so subtly elevate above him, what the Bible calls idols. And he takes them away for us individually, but praise God, he's taking them away from us culturally as well. I mean, who else but the Lord can deal a blow to the cultural idols of sports and recreation that he has? Who else can deal a blow to our idol of comfort and instant gratification? Who else can deal a blow to our greed of, and wealth the pursuit of money, all of these things and many, many more the Lord is, is, is dealing with right now through this pandemic. Will it last? I don't think so. Which is why this moment is so important. This kairos, this opportunity. Because if your heart is longing for any of those things, he is showing you, as just as he's showing me, the idols that are there. And what our flesh is going to want to do is to run to replace those idols with new ones. Because that's what our flesh does. 
And so rather than replace those idols, what the Lord is calling us to, what he's showing us as these things are taken away, is that we need to run to him and seek him. Because remember, our God is a jealous God. Exodus 34, 12 through 14 says, Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And our jealous God, in his mercy, is showing us those altars and those idols that have been put up in our lives. And he is giving us the opportunity, by his grace, to tear them down. Are we doing so? Are we taking the opportunity? Are we seizing the moment as the Spirit shows us? Do not tolerate any idols in your midst. By the grace of God, get rid of them when they need to be removed and put them into their right place where they need to be reprioritized. The Lord is showing us these priorities. How are we using our time during this season where we're all at home what are we doing with this extra time one of the sure ways to know that there are idols in your life is if during this season you have been unable to rest and to connect with our king in a meaningful way Rest is so important, and the Lord is giving us an opportunity as a culture to rest right now, to have a Sabbath with Him. Do you find that ironic? I don't. I think it's exactly the right time that the Lord is doing this right now in the midst of the Lenten season as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection of our King. How many of us typically take no time to prepare to celebrate the victory of our Lord? Well, he ain't having that this year. He's making us pause and stop and reflect, and he's saying, hey, take some time to prepare and to praise me and the victory that I have won over sin and death. Psalm 23, I love this, so famous, but I'm going to read the whole thing because why not? Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me, underline that in your Bibles if you haven't. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Amen? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord 
forever. Amen. Amen. That is our king, our good shepherd. And right now, dear sheep, he is making us lie down in green pastures. He is forcing us to rest and to evaluate our priorities that we may see the idols that are in our heart and repent of those things and tear them down. And finally, he shows us our purpose. He shows us our purpose. If you have been feeling empty and alone in isolation through this pandemic, then I would submit to you that the Lord is calling you to find fullness and fulfillment by submitting more deeply to Him. By seeking His purposes. And His purposes are not to be stagnant. His purposes are to proclaim His truth. And you have been placed in a unique position where only you can speak truth to certain people around you. And right now, for many of us, that's our family. Speak truth to your spouse. Speak truth to your kids. We just had an entire heart talk series about how out of the abundance of our, of our heart, the mouth speaks. We have an opportunity through this season to put that into practice, to be speakers of life to those around us, to our coworkers who are searching for answers. This is an unprecedented opportunity to have meaningful purpose as people are searching for answers, as people are searching for, for a why, and we can give it to them. We can tell them that our Lord is giving us an opportunity to be stirred up. There's an earthquake just like Jerusalem, right? The whole city is being stirred up and wondering what's going on, and we have the answer, and it's the fact that the Lord is giving us an opportunity to fall on our knees and turn to Him. By God's grace, we remove the things that distract us and we pursue the purpose that he has for us. Build relationships with those around you, both in your home and in your workplace or in your neighborhood. Talk to people. Speak with them. Ask the Lord. Parents, how many of you can say amen to this? Ask the Lord to give you patience. All right? Patience with your kids. I understand. I get it. Patience with your spouse. <laughs> ask the Lord to move that you can build meaningful relationship and then as you ask the Lord for patience, put that right alongside a prayer for boldness. Lord God, give us boldness to speak your truth and prepare the hearts of those who are to hear it. 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control or, or a sound mind. 
That is our prayer for boldness, that we walk in the gifts that he has given us, that we walk in the opportunities that he is providing to us, this moment to speak truth to those around us. And as the Lord shows us our heart and we repent of those things, by God's grace, we can move in that purpose more intentionally, more effectively, and we see the fruit of that labor to the glory of our God, to the glory of our King. As we remember the triumphal entry of our Lord on Palm Sunday, and we see the moment that that was for the people of Jerusalem, and how most of them missed it, praise God, He gave them another chance. But brother and sister, For those of us right now in this Kairos moment, in 2020, amidst of this COVID-19 pandemic, let us not miss it. Let us press in to the truth of the gospel, to submit to the power of the Spirit in our lives, to boldly speak truth to the opportunities that the Lord puts around us. And as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection of our King, as we prepare to celebrate His victory, let us be intentional about having our hearts revealed and the sin removed that we would press into Him more and more fully. Amen? Now we are going to transition to a time of reflection, an opportunity to ask the Lord to show you those things in your heart. As we remember what our Savior has done for us, the the pain that Jesus Christ endured in the cross, and we remember his death in our place that we might have life. And so Pastor Tim is going to walk us through that. And as we are doing this, let us ask the Lord to settle our hearts, to remind us again of his great love for us, that we may submit to him more fully and walk trusting in him more completely as we capture this opportunity, this kairos moment to press into our King. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for this reminder of what you are calling us to. Thank you for this moment you have given us. And I pray, Lord, that every single one of us, by the power of your Spirit, through the grace that you provide, Lord, would be moved by this mercy that you are doing in our lives to show us our hearts that we may repent and turn to you and share truth with others. I pray these things, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Matthew, for that message. And what a great way to frame what we're about to do as we approach the Lord's Supper together. And I want to remind you that if you're about to demonstrate to your family or to one another the symbolism and the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, if you're about to participate together, can I remind you that this is for believers only. This is for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. 
And if that is you, we want to invite you to partake with us. And we've never done it like this before. We've never had an online Lord's Supper celebration. This is a sober celebration. But we're going to do that today. So we want to encourage you to have that bread, have that cracker, have that juice ready. And when we get to that portion of this time, I will instruct you on when to take that. And we'll do that together. We want to slow it down a little bit. We want to reflect. And the way that I thought we could do that is by taking you back almost 2,000 years During Passion Week, passion means suffering. During the week of Christ's suffering. And I want you to now imagine that you are in the city of Jerusalem, that I am in the city of Jerusalem with you. We are there with our families. And as one Roman census was taken during Passover in the time of Jesus, there were 2,700,000 people that traveled to this great city to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was an eight-day festival. It was a joyful festival. It was their first festival of the year. And the city of Jerusalem had been getting ready for this for over a month. They'd been painting their tombstones and their graveyards white so that no one would accidentally touch one and then be rendered ceremonially unclean. They'd been repairing the roads on the way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was over 2,600 feet in elevation, so you always went up to Jerusalem. They'd been cleaning the city. They'd been restoring their homes. This was an exciting time. And I want you to picture and imagine that you're there, and I'm there with you. And the great temple of Jerusalem is there, the temple of God that Herod rebuilt And I want you to imagine it's Thursday. Jesus was crucified on Friday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. He died at 3 o'clock that afternoon. But I want to take you to Thursday, and it's Thursday morning. And Jesus, from the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, likely, where he was staying throughout that week, he sent Peter and John, ahead of him. Go, he said, and make preparations for the Passover meal. So Peter and John did, and Jesus had said to them, you're going to go into the city and you're going to find somebody there, a man who is carrying a jug of water. Tell him the master sent you, and he will, tell you, he will take you to where we're going to celebrate. Well, that was really odd with almost 20 or 2,700,000 people around. How are they going to find this man? Well, men didn't customarily carry water. That was a job for the women, So this man would stick out. They would find him readily enough, and certainly, and indeed they did. And they found this man, and he walks them over to a large home in Jerusalem that had a banquet room in the upper part of it, which is very common. And this was a large one. And Peter and John, they went to the city and they bought the, at the market all of the ingredients, all of the food that they needed to be able to celebrate the Passover meal later that evening. And then they went to take their lamb. The lamb that they would have selected, the disciples of Jesus, four days previously, on Monday. 
So that was a Jewish law. You had to select your lamb, and it had to be a perfect lamb, and a spotless lamb. It couldn't have what was called the scab disease. It couldn't have any abrasions. And they would select that lamb, and it would have been a lamb that was certified worthy to be sacrificed. In fact, the word in the Greek, tetelestai, would have been pronounced over that lamb. That word means it is complete, it is finished. So Peter and John, they take the lamb that they had purchased four days before, and they took that lamb and likely carried the lamb on one of their shoulders and walked their way through the throng of people along with so many other worshipers to the temple of God. They walked up those 15 steps with the lamb on their shoulder into the court of the Gentiles, even further into the temple precinct, into the court of women, and then even further into the court of Israel. And that was as far as they could go. And there would be thousands of worshipers, each of them having their lamb that was going to be sacrificed for their family. You see, the Jewish law said that there was one lamb for at minimum 10 people and at maximum 20 So if you do the math with 2,700,000 people, you're looking at around 270,000 lambs that were about to be sacrificed. This is an incredible scene for a joyful festival. They are in there with their lamb, and there's priests all arrayed all around the court of the priests, and they come up to John, and they come up to Peter, and they hand to one of them a knife. And the other one, at 1.30 in the afternoon on Thursday, would have heard, all of them, the shofar, the trumpet blow. And that was the sign now that you are to take your hand and you are to firmly lay hold of the head of your lamb. And you are to pray that God would take the sins of you and your family and transfer them over to the head of that lamb, to the innocent lamb that was going to be their substitute, so that the lamb would die in the place of Peter and John and the disciples. See, that's how the Jewish sacrificial system worked. It was always about substitution. Something innocent needs to die for the guilty, for the sinner. So one of them, John or Peter, lays their hands, maybe even both of them, onto the head of that lamb. And they pray and they ask God to put those sins, their sins, their personal sins, their guilt, onto that lamb. And at 2.30, the shofar blows again. Three mighty blasts. And the worshiper would have taken the knife And grab the head of that lamb and plunge the knife in its throat. And the priest holding either a silver bowl or a gold bowl would collect the blood while it gushed out of that dying lamb. To us, that seems so terrible. That seems so horrible. And it's meant to be that way for something innocent has to die for sins that we've committed, that they committed. 
the priests would take those bowls of blood and they would pass them down the line like an assembly line all the way to the altar where the priests nearest the altar would take the bowls of blood and splash it against the side of the altar and dump it down the base of the altar where there was a conduit, a hole, and it was dug underneath the temple ground, underneath the temple wall to flow down into the Kidron Valley where it was said that the Kidron Brook, it was a stream, it would flow red for days. The lamb, now dead, would be hung up on a hook, and the priest would skin that lamb, and then separate the fat from the lamb and some of the internal organs, and put that onto the altar as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then the lamb's carcass was given back to Peter and John. They took the lamb, and they headed back to the home where they were going to be celebrating the Passover feast. They took a pomegranate spit, that's how they did it, and they inserted it into the mouth of the lamb and all the way through out the back end of the lamb, and sometimes they inserted another one right behind its front shoulders forming a crude cross, and then they roasted that lamb over a coal bed of charcoal. Meanwhile, Jesus begins to set out and he comes into the city with the rest of the disciples at sunset now. And the Passover was to begin when three stars come out in the night sky. That now signified that it was Friday, not Thursday anymore, because the Jewish people, their day started at sunset. And then their day ended the following sunset. So now it's Friday And Jesus comes up with his disciples into the upper room. And there in that upper room would have been tables about the height of our modern coffee table, but larger in the shape of a rectangle. And all around that table, except for one end, would be cushions and pillows. They called them couches. Because this was a meal that the Jewish people reclined at. They did not sit at a table like we commonly do. They reclined. This was a meal of peace. This was a meal of joy. This was a meal that they were to enjoy, and they enjoyed it in a reclining position. On their left elbow on the cushions, their right hand able to reach to the table to get their food and their drink, and their bodies angled away from the table. This is how they ate that meal. And then all of a sudden we come to Luke chapter 22. And Luke records what happens in that upper room, what Jesus begins to say. It's during this meal that when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
This is called the cup of blessing. And with it, Jesus began the Lord's Supper that we celebrate each month. Now I'm going to pause for a moment to allow you to get your cracker, to get your bread, to get your wine in cups poured for you and your family. Go ahead and do that right now. I'm going to go get the one that I've prepared, and then I will be right back. They drank from that first cup called the cup of blessing. He's going to do the same thing with the third cup. That's also called the cup of blessing. That's what we're going to be taking in a moment. But before he does that, before the disciples will drink that second cup or that third cup rather, he's going to take bread And it's unleavened bread. And there's some really beautiful, rich, a depth of truth behind that. You see, the way that they leavened their bread was to take a bit of dough and let it ferment. And once it had fermented, they would mix it in with a new batch of dough. And it would rise and would puff up and they would bake it into a loaf. But you see, the Jewish people understood that leavened bread that had been puffed up symbolized our pride. It symbolized the corruption, the the way that sin works as it permeates the entire dough of bread. It permeates sin does our entire souls, our entire beings. This is why for all of the Old Testament, whenever the Jewish people brought a grain offering, that grain offering had to be without leaven. It had to have none of that symbol of pride and corruption of sin. In fact, the night before, this would have been Wednesday evening, very interestingly, the ladies of the Jewish homes would have lit a candle when those three stars came out, and they would have taken a feather and a wooden spoon. And together with their children and their husbands, they would have walked through the entire home, scouring it, every cupboard, under every bed, in every nook and cranny, trying to find any traces of leaven. And if they found some, they would use that feather to scoop it into the spoon and they would throw it out into the yard. It was so serious that this festival of unleavened bread of which the Passover begins, they could have no leaven for those eight days. No bread with leaven in it. This was to be a holy, holy festival. The next day, Thursday morning, the priests, every Passover took a bench in the court of the temple and they would put two loaves on that bench And at 10 o'clock in the morning, they would remove one of those loaves. And that was the symbol. That was the sign for all of Jerusalem. Get your leaven out of your homes. Make sure there's none left. And then at 1130 to noon, they would remove that second loaf. 
so that the bench was clear and that was the time they must not have any more leaven. It had to be removed. So Jesus takes this bread, this unleavened bread, such a perfect symbol of who he is. There is no pride. He took the form of a servant. He did not come to be served, the Bible says, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. He takes this bread, which is a symbol of no sin, because he is the spotless lamb of God. He is perfect. He's never sinned. He is our Savior. And he breaks that bread And he gives it to each of his disciples and he instructs them to eat. He says this in Luke 22. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want you to take that bread if your children are with you and they are Christians and they are going to participate. Would you let them hold that piece of bread and would you look at it for a moment? That is the symbol of the perfect, humble body of Christ, which he gave for us that we might live. Let me pray and then we will eat. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that he never tasted of sin personally but yet he took all of our sins on him on that cross and it was the only cry of pain and anguish from the cross for our Lord he spoke seven times and only once was it filled with anguish my God my God why have you forsaken me that was the cry of one of whom you had put all of our sins upon He never tasted that before. So we take this bread and we eat it. And we remember and we rejoice with joy that we have a Savior that has never sinned. A Savior that is humble. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. That is Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for the gift that he is to us. And in Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat with joy. I trust that you have, each of you who are Christians, a cup of juice or a cup of wine. I want to tell you that wine is a symbol of his blood that he shed for us. See, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And it wouldn't have been enough for Jesus to have cut his finger and bled a few drops. No, you see, what it means in the Bible without the shedding of blood means that you must shed your blood to death. And just as a few hours before, Peter and John, when they pushed that knife into the throat of their lamb and bled that lamb dry, Jesus had to bleed to death. 
See, the power is in the blood. And that power, Christian, has made you whiter than snow. There is no white that can compare to the whiteness of your soul, having been scoured and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. There is no stain of which you must still regret that you did before you were a Christian. There is no shame that God is dangling over your head. He has paid for it all. He has taken away your guilt. He has cleansed you of all of your shame, all of your failures, all of your mistakes, all of your sins, all of the terrible things that you have done. He has cleansed you and made you as righteous as he is. That's the power of the blood of Christ. This is the symbol of that power. Lest we would puff up in pride and think, you know, I've done pretty well this week. God must be pleased with me. No, Christian brother and sister, he is pleased with you only because his son died in your place. And he loves you and he has adopted you and his favor is upon you. Why? Because of Jesus, our Savior. It is to that we drink. Can I encourage all of you who are about to participate, would you hold your cup up as a toast to Jesus? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his obedience. Thank you that he died in our place on that cross. Thank you that he is the Passover lamb. He is the cup of blessing. He is the one who has made our salvation possible. All glory goes to your son. And it is he that we exalt and we say thank you. We say we love you. And as we drink this now, we tell you we are so thankful that you are our Lord and Savior. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Let's drink together. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, my sin, Tim Hackley's sin, your sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Can you say amen to that? Father, we want to say amen, a word that means the Bible. We agree and we have confidence in the certainty of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sakes. He was our substitution. He died in our place, one who never sinned, died in the place of sinners. So Father, we say thank you. Jesus, we say thank you. Holy Spirit, we say thank you. And as we are about to sing and we're about to sing a, a song called Mountains. Lord, I pray that those words would permeate our soul. The words that Pastor Matthew 
preached, Lord, would resonate in our souls, that we would gain a magnificent view of our Savior, and that our trust in you would be even greater today than it was yesterday. And in the midst of this pandemic, we would not be people who shrink back from fear. We will be the confident, courageous people of God because our God is on the throne and our God is good and our God is merciful and our God is Yahweh. He is eternally faithful to us. And it is the name of Jesus who was given the name Yahweh that we pray that prayer. Amen. Let's sing together and praise our great God. So this next song, it's a new song, and you guys won't know it yet because it's brand new, but it's a song that is really fitting for the times that we're all facing together, and it's a song about asking God to, to teach us how to believe in him and how to hear his voice in the midst of all this craziness. So let's just all listen and just dwell on these words and just worship together. Trying to find the strength to trust in you somehow The sky is gray The world's on fire Still you tell me you're here with me right now Can feel my strength fading away Father, please don't Turn away Teach me to believe in you When my world comes crashing down Teach me how to hear your voice When I can't hear a sound When I'm tired and I'm anxious Feel like I can't run this race When the world goes dark Show me to see your face God, I'm scared of what's going on, and I don't know how the future will unfold, but you are strong, stronger than my fears, so I'll stay right here and give you all control, give you all control.
been blessed through this service. It was a little bit longer today, but we really wanted to slow down and we really wanted to focus in both sermon and the Lord's Supper on our Savior. And I trust that it was a meaningful experience, not only for you, but if you're with your family, I hope that that was meaningful for your family as well, that it would enrich your faith. We worshiped together. We ate and drank together. We sat under the Word of God together. And now we're going to close this service together with the words of Psalm 27. And it goes like this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent and he will lift me high upon the rock. The rock is Jesus. Amen. Let's pray and let's go out and be the church. Let us love our God. Let us serve one another. Let us grow together. Find ways to reach out, to encourage one another. Let me go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you that your son is the rock 
and he is our shelter. Yahweh, you are our confidence. Our God is mighty. Our God is good. Our God is trustworthy. And yes, there is trouble in the world. And yes, we're asking God that you would end this virus, that you would bring glory to your name. And yes, we know that it's going to bring economic problems. And there's problems with jobs and joblessness. And Father, we know all of this, but yet we know that you're our God and we will not be afraid. We are your people and you've got it in control. Thank you for that certain truth. May we walk out of here. May we close down this service. May we spend time with our family and friends and share with them the good news that Jesus Christ has come. He is the Passover lamb. He died on that cross, and in a week, we're going to celebrate his resurrection. And when we all come back together in that week, we're going to talk about the life giver, Jesus. The one who's, who brings the dead to life. And it's in his name we pray. It's his name we say, amen and amen. God bless Cornerstone. We hope your week goes well. Walk with the Lord. Trust in him. He's got the whole world in his hands. God bless.